Welcome to episode 19 of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. Now, today I'm thrilled to welcome Footwork, an early stage focused VC firm investing its first $175 million fund. Now, Footwork leads and co leads Series A and seed rounds in companies with early signs of product market fit, focusing on consumer tech and also the consumerization of enterprise technology. Now, before Footwork, Nikhil was Managing Director at Shasta Ventures, a boutique early-stage VC firm in Silicon Valley investing in consumer and enterprise tech startups. Nikhil has invested in the likes of Canva, Hinge, and Class Dojo. And listen, I've heard great things from many people, Nikhil, so thank you for joining me today. Likewise, Alex. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Now, I know you get excited about finding and investing the next big thing. Tell me, how did you first make your way into the world of startups and venture capital? Sure. So, um, you know, like you, I grew up in the UK, uh, was born in Oxford, lived in the south of England in Reading. And then when I was 13, my parents' jobs brought us out here to the Bay Area. Uh, and so I got to go to high school out here, uh, got to learn how to code and got exposed to the world of entrepreneurship and technology just by being here in Silicon Valley as a teenager. Uh, I think I learned what the, the term venture capital meant uh, you know, back, back when I was in high school. Uh, and then when I went to college, I started working on startup ideas from day one. One of those became a real company that's still going today called Artsy. It's a marketplace in the art world. And whenever we were pitching VC investors, I just found myself really excited about those meetings and thinking about things like, wow, this job seems amazing, what these people are doing. Like, how do I get to do that one day? Uh, and so that interest led me to um, to find Insight Partners out in New York, which hires people into their, their firm and team straight out of undergrad. And I actually joined there first as a summer intern, which is where a lot of the um, the analysts start. Uh, and so in the summer of 2010, I joined Insight. I was 21 and I loved that summer at the firm. And then I joined there full time. And, and then I went over to Shasta and now Footwork. And so it's been 12 years now of uh, being in venture and just feel incredibly lucky that I got into this at, at a young age. No, that's really terrific hearing it from such an early point in your in your life. And I'm actually curious, you know, what's your process now in finding these once in a lifetime investment opportunities i know you call them generational companies what's your what's your idea behind that nikhil so at insight what you learn is the best companies are ones you have to seek out and insight historically has taken very much an, an outbound approach to sourcing companies when you join there as uh, as an analyst, your primary role is to just get out there and find companies, um, you know, uh, find their contact information, uh, call, text, email the founders, um, learn about the businesses and figure out what to invest in uh, through that, that proactive approach. And so I've always had that perspective that, you know, you as an investor have to get out there and seek out the best companies and not wait for them to come to you. Uh, now, that being said, I think that's a very broad mandate, right? So over time, what I've learned is going deep in certain areas, uh, trying to spend time with as many founders and, and builders and um, you know, people working on that area as possible helps me formulate a thesis for what to look for. And out of that process, uh, you know, you have a better chance to find the most interesting company in a certain area. Um, and of course, first of all, whether an area is interesting at all or not to invest in. Uh, and it's that sort of thesis driven out plus outbound approach that uh, has led to a number of the investments in, in my career and continues to inform how we think about things at Footwork today. Of course, you know, we get introduced to, to companies through people we know, through the founders that we've backed, through other investors in the ecosystem that uh, have a sense for our taste. But um, but I always go back to that proactive and outbound approach as 
uh, my preferred method to finding uh, those types of generational opportunities. Have you ever had opportunities that have come your way and been reactive and then ultimately ended up missing out on a stellar opportunity? For sure. Um, unfortunately, if you do this job long enough, you have many of those stories. And so, right. uh, you know, there, there's one period in time that's probably uh, one of the most painful periods of my venture career now in the 2014, sort of early 2015 uh, era. Uh, I was looking at a number of companies in fintech and uh, a couple of these were outbound and some were inbound, but, um, but got in front of Robinhood, uh, Plaid, and Chime before those companies were all raising their series A's spent a lot of time on, uh, on them, um, had my partners meet them. And for one reason or another, didn't end up making any of those investments. And obviously, uh, all three of those would have been great, uh, investments to make at the series A, uh, given uh, how they're valued today, even with, you know, public market corrections for a company like Robinhood and, 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 and probably private market corrections for the other two, I'd still love to be in them. So that's just one example uh, of three companies in, in time period that I missed. Uh, unfortunately, there are, there are many more. No, totally. Um, I, you know, you, you absolutely can't, can't catch them all. And, uh, you know, having, having that foresight, I think is, you know, it's, well, hindsight is a wonderful thing, at least, you know, um, so your focus right now, Nikhil, it's on consumer technology companies as well as enterprise companies that are building consumer-like products. Why do these sectors fundamentally interest you? Yeah, so, you know, having worked on consumer ideas as an entrepreneur, I sort of naturally gravitated towards those when I started in my investing uh, journey. And, you know, I think in many ways, um, SaaS, enterprise SaaS is sort of the, the, the bread and butter. It's become the bread and butter of the venture industry over the last, uh, you know, 10, 15 years. Uh, and, you know, I think um, one can stand out a little bit more being focused on consumer businesses. And I sort of always felt that from my, my early days in this job. Uh, so that's one reason that I felt like I had more of a calling card in consumer and just had a natural interest to try to find the next huge consumer idea. Um, you know, back when I started investing as well, the sort of belief was, you know, in consumer, you can have $10 billion plus outcomes, even though they're few and far between, of course, and, and there's many more zeros. Uh, whereas in enterprise, you can get many more sort of one to $5 billion outcomes, uh, and it's safer. And I was always more interested in sort of the, the riskier path um, to try to invest in, in, in these types of consumer ideas. I think, um, you know, the, the other piece of this uh, focus for us at Footwork of enterprise companies that look and behave more like consumer businesses, that's, that's been uh, an interest that's evolved over the course of the last 12 years. As I saw a bunch of enterprise companies with a, a product-led growth go-to-market motion with a consumer-like um, application, uh, you know, met metrics that followed more consumer businesses than enterprise businesses. I'm thinking, of course, of companies like Slack and Zoom and Canva and others. Uh, I just realized that's an area that I can also be dangerous in given what I've learned in consumer businesses. And having made investments in companies such as Canva back in their seed round of 2014 and, and others along the way uh, have found that that to be the case. And so uh, those are the two areas. You know, my partner, Mike, at Footwork uh, has been a consumer company builder and operator for the last couple decades. He was the COO of Stitch Fix, uh, the public company in the retail apparel space. He was there from four people to it being a public company. And before that, he was a COO of Walmart.com. Mm -hmm. And so he also has a natural gravitation towards businesses that are either consumer businesses or one step away from consumer businesses, such as ones that serve uh, consumer businesses. 
And, uh, and so with footwork just being the two of us, it makes sense for us to focus on those areas versus other lanes that we, uh, you know, probably don't have as much of a reason to be investing in. Totally. And I think there's that great quote from Jim Rohn where he says, if you're not willing to risk the unusual, you'll have to settle for the ordinary. How do you manage risk in venture nickel from investing early at seed across to series A? Mm. It's an interesting way to frame it. How do you manage risk? You know, I think at the end of the day, we are in the risk-taking business. And one of the things Mike and I think about as we look at our portfolio is, are we taking enough risk? Uh, Because at the end of the day, when you're investing at the early stage, typically what happens is that, let's say you make 20 investments in a fund, it's really one or two companies that drive the vast majority of your returns in that fund. And, And so you need to take enough risk in each investment to have the chance to have those massive outcomes that will return, hopefully, each you know, multiples of the fund. Uh, and if you have a couple of investments that return multiples of the fund, then you have a terrific fund. So that's one of the ways I think about it, which is, you know, to, to force ourselves to think in each investment decision, are we dreaming the dream enough? Are, are we taking enough risk? Do we think if this really works, it can return multiples of the fund? Um, and that's an important lens for us. Yeah, super, super fascinating there. And I'd love to hear, you know, your experience across the other side of the table as a founder. What are some lessons that you've brought from that into the arena of investing? Yeah, now, of course, I was a founder when I was, you know, only 19 years old. Uh, I really didn't know uh, anything. (laughs) Uh, And, uh, you know, it was also a different era in 2008. Uh, when there just wasn't as much literature out there about how to build companies. Like I remember pouring over Paul Graham's essays and a few other blog posts and resources back then. But today you've just got so much more information out there about what it's like to be a founder and things to do and things to not do. Uh, I really actually wish that we'd had some of that because we probably would have made less mistakes. I think the biggest thing that, uh, that I've drawn from that, those experiences is the empathy of just what it's like to uh, try to build something from scratch, to try to manage a relationship with co-founders, to hire people, to manage a team, uh, to try to find product market fit. Uh, I think a lot of the uh, actual ways and tactics to do those things have evolved a lot. And, and my thinking has evolved a lot, obviously, since since I was in those shoes. But the the feeling of what it's like to go through that and the empathy uh, that, that I think I, I can have for founders uh, still from having gone through that has helped me in my career. Um, the other thing now is, is having started a venture firm, uh, I've become a founder again. Now, of course, starting a venture firm is different from starting a you know, technology company that, that uh, aims to raise venture capital one day or, or bootstraps to being a massive business, but it's still being a founder and it's still, you know, uh, comes with uh, a lot of the same sort of empathetic characteristics that that I think the founders that we invest in go through. Uh, you know, we faced um, lots of rejections from limited partners and uh, lack of follow up from some, and and so like even empathy just for the fundraising process is something you 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 have if you found a firm um, uh, with you know uh, founders that are going out there to raise capital. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned there wasn't much literature or writing or media about investing back in the day. What are some of the favorite resources you pull from now, Nikhil, to make these informed decisions about the market and investing today? Yeah, you know, I I still find uh, Fred Wilson, who's one of my heroes in the venture business, uh, who started Union Square Ventures to be uh, really insightful in his daily musings at ABC. Uh, and so that's that's one resource that I've learned a ton from over the years and continue to learn from. And I just love the short form of his 
his essays and uh, and how many lessons are packed into those, both for us as investors as well as for founders and, and company builders. Um, there's other newer ones. You know, I I, uh, I subscribe, for example, to uh, Lenny Richitsky's newsletter, and I think he's done a fabulous job unpacking insights for how to build businesses and lessons from things that have worked and not worked from lots of different companies over um, over time. And I think he just does a great job synthesizing uh, those lessons. Uh, I subscribe to a bunch of other newsletters. And, and so, you know, that's probably where I, I get the most info these days. Um, of course, I'm still a Ben Thompson fan. I just think he uh, is incredibly smart uh, about so this intersection of strategy and technology. Um, and then there's a few podcasts that I listen to and, and glean stuff out of. Um, so that, that, that's sort of my, my set of resources. I don't think it's that different from that many other folks. No, some of the greats there, Nikhil, which I too enjoy consuming from. Um, and I guess moving on slightly, I know you have a deep passion for business really working on the most important challenges of our time, right? What would you say is the most overlooked sector inside VC right now? Hmm. It's a good question. You know, it might be, um, this intersection between the life sciences and computing. And the reason I say that is I, I think if I think about what, what the other important sectors are, uh, for our time, you know, climate tech has a lot of folks deeply focused there uh, now. Uh, it's taken, obviously, a whole cycle uh, post-clean tech uh, boom and bust to get back there. But I think I think we're there now where uh, a lot of talent is focused there, a lot of investors are focused there. Um, and, of course, there's healthcare-specific investors and, and always have been. But I think there's a new generation of companies at this intersection of biology, the life sciences, computing, healthcare, uh, that don't quite fit into a lot of healthcare-focused uh, venture folks' mandates and don't quite fit into a lot of um, pure software and internet uh, firms' mandates. And I think uh, if you press me on that one area that's that's more overlooked, it's probably that. Um, Maybe the other one is education. You know, I think there's a number of ed, ed tech focused investors, uh, of course, but when I think about what's happened over the last couple of years with the pandemic and the loss of learning for so many kids, the loss of sort of social behavioral learning as well as classroom learning, uh, I just think there's a huge opportunity there and probably not enough people focus there. Yeah, super interesting. And even speaking of the likes of, say, climate change, I know it's been a, a cool 40 degrees Celsius over here in London the past couple of days. So uh, definitely something that we should be paying a little, a little bit more attention to, Nikhil. Yeah, <laughs> I hope you're surviving that, that heat wave. Yeah, it's been pretty crazy. <laughs> Nonetheless, um, yeah, I mean, that's actually you know, super, super fascinating. The, the intersection of biology, life sciences and computing, um, you know, I, and I think, you know, d diving into that a little bit further with your writing on your Substack, Next Big Thing. One of my favorite pieces there is on the rise of the solo capitalist, uh, with prime examples obviously being, you know, Elad Gill, Josh Buckley, um, and, and co. What are some of the advantages and drawbacks operating on this solo model? Yeah, so... Uh, you know, I wrote that piece as I was exploring what I wanted to do for myself, uh, whether or not I wanted to go solo or, or form a team. Uh, I think the advantages are there's just a, an enormous amount of simplicity to it just being you. Uh, you know, one person who makes all the decisions, one person to interface with for founders, um, you know, one person to bet on for limited partners. Uh, the brand is just you. You don't have to think about your own brand plus the firm's brand. It's really one and the same thing. Um, and and so I think there's just a, a level of simplicity to both sort of running a firm as a solo capitalist, where it's just you, and um, 
and for founders uh, to understand who you are and what you do uh, that makes it really interesting and, and uh, uh, you know, an exciting part of the capital stack. I think the drawbacks are, uh, it is very difficult to scale that model. And while uh, folks like Elad and, and perhaps Lockie Groom and Josh Buckley, and of course, um, people like Shanna Fisher have, have figured it out to a certain extent. Uh, I think if you want to do this for a really long period of time, um, it's just really hard to, to, to do it all and, and remain so low uh, in being able to scale yourself. Uh, I think the other thing is uh, part of this comes down to sort of legacy and, and what you ultimately want to do with your, uh, with your firm. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's basically impossible to have the firm live on beyond you when it's just you. Now, uh, for a lot of people, that doesn't matter. Um, but you know, if you in this business look up to people like Don Valentine and Andy Ratcliffe and Fred Wilson and others who have either, uh, started firms that already live beyond them or one day will, uh, it's very hard to sort of go down that path solo. Uh, and so those are some of the considerations that I had as I was trying to figure out which path to go on. Uh, I applaud all the folks that are, are going solo. I think it's, uh, it's exciting um, and simple. Uh, I realized it wasn't for me. Yeah, you said you wrote that piece about what you wanted to do yourself, Nikhil. What benefit do you get from distilling and writing about your thoughts incredibly frequently through your newsletter? Yeah, it's been an incredible boon to me and, and to my career. You know, I think... It, it's helped me sort of suss out my own thinking and become smarter just from putting my thoughts down as well as hearing people's feedback on those thoughts. So just for my own edification, purely selfishly, it's been really helpful, um, you know, for building my own brand and now Footworks brand. I think it's sort of the primary outlet, you know, when you have tens of thousands of subscribers and tens of thousands of people that read uh, each piece, um, it just, uh, you know, it obviously tells people about who you are and, uh, enough people with enough surface area to be meaningful. And then I think probably the most important part of that is one of the hardest things in this business is to remain top of mind to people. Uh, you know, people may know your name and know who you are, but they may not remember you when, they're starting a company or when they are spending time with a company that they realize may be of interest to you, unless you reach out to them. It's sort of back to that proactive comment I made at the beginning about uh, how I think the best companies are found. And so by showing up in someone's inbox with an insightful read, you naturally remain top of mind and you increase your probability of uh, being thought about for that, uh, that interesting company that may be out there thinking about raising capital. And so I think that that's, that's the most interesting part of this and, and, um, and probably the most useful part of, of writing. I wish I could do it on a more regular basis. I had a daughter eight months ago and my life has been a bit more complicated since then, but I do hope to get back to being, uh, on a very regular basis, uh, over the years ahead. No, I really, really love that point, and I can absolutely vouch for it too, Nikhil. You're very much increasing that surface area of luck um, that, that you're building by staying top of mind. And you, you also mentioned that, look, with building via this solo capitalist model, there is a, a lack of scale, yet there's also you know super key man risk, right? If you go, there is no firm, yet the appeal of the individual makes the route attractive, and I think from that, we're also seeing brand building in venture changing, right? We're transitioning from a company level to an individual level with the likes of, say, Patty McCormick, Mario Gabriele. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm interested to know, look, how are VCs thinking about how to improve their products to attract the best customers, otherwise founders, via 
going through this route? Yeah, you know, I think um, there's all sorts of ways in which we as investors can, uh, you know, add value. And of course, it depends on uh, what the company itself does and, 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 you know, where would be most helpful uh, to be able to improve the, the likelihood of success of that company. Um, I think for folks like Paki and Mario and others who have turned writing and content into uh, being an investor, you know, one of the, the, the primary places of value add is what we were discussing earlier around, you know, staying top of mind, uh, building your brand and, and sort of telling the story of your company to a wide audience. Uh, a bunch of those folks have a lot of reach and that's helpful for a set of companies. Um, you know, I think the, the, the most powerful products in venture are ones that are really easy for everyone to understand what they stand for and, and how they help. Um, and so the rise of sort of sector focused firms uh, is, is really interesting because it's just easy to know what they stand for, right? If your entire focus is on web three or your entire focus is on um, FinTech. Uh, and, and so that's, I think part of the venture product stack that's been really helpful to have in the last, uh, in the last decade. Um, you know, a bunch of these solo folks can perhaps add value from uh, a functional lens and, and just sort of one core functional lens, such as product or growth. Um, that's really helpful for, uh, for those companies. And so uh, that's some of how I think about uh, that question of, um, you know, how do these products appeal to founders? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know, following this vein a little bit further, especially with, what you were talking about with the newsletter earlier, Nick Hill. Um, you know, there are many alternatives to traditional PR right now. I mean, you know, people prefer going direct to their audience and customer. And I think, look, you're a prime example of that with the write-ups you do about your porcos. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with maintaining control over the message right and previously with you know traditional pr it, it's very often intermediated versus now the consumer or the individual who is you know buying a product or service of that company can go directly to you nikhil and get your thoughts directly versus something that is intermediated how how, how do you see that going forward into the future because that's something that really fascinates me it makes so much sense right um you know when you can control the narrative uh and you know control the reach um you just sort of you have your own like owned and operated channel to go acquire hires or customers or other investors whatever it is that you're you're seeking. Um, and, you know, that's what we see too when we've published posts about uh, potential investments. This happened recently with um, uh, one of our investments, Heard, in the mental health space. Uh, we wrote a post about it. Uh, uh, you know, a bunch of people read it. Uh, one person who was interested in joining the company reached out to me, and she's now at the company um, working on data science and, and data analytics. And, and so, and there's, I don't, I don't think that would have happened had TechCrunch just written a piece and, um, and, uh, you know, we hadn't written anything. And so that's just one, you know, very tangible way in which I've seen it be impactful. But I think more broadly, especially given how expensive it is to reach customers through, you know, paid channels today, owning and operating your own channel and, and if that channel is a newsletter or a podcast or something that reaches a wide audience uh, where you can control the message, it's just incredibly valuable. Yeah, no, that's something I really can get behind, controlling the narrative, controlling the reach, um, because the internet has ultimately 
commoditize the reporting of facts, whilst the mainstream media very much has moved to a rigid agenda. So being able to, you know, go direct to source and be able to take it at face value is um, really, really cool. Now, at Footwork, Nickel, you have a great partner, Mike Smith. I'm interested to know why is finding the right partner so important, whether you're investing or building a startup alike? Yeah, I mean, I think back to sort of even the solo capitalist uh, question earlier, Alex, um, you know, the simplicity of it is you don't have to deal with partners. Uh, the, uh, the the trade-off or the issue with it is, um, you know, you don't have partners. And in some cases, partners can actually really make you better. They, they can make the firm better. They can make your decision-making better. And so I, I think partnership is one of those those things that, when it works and when it's uh when it's great it's amazing and uh you know it can lead to more professional success more personal happiness and on the flip side when it doesn't work uh it can be detrimental to both those things so when i was getting started to figure out you know what form foot would would take and who would i build it with i had a very intentional process to um to, to chat with potential partners, to go through a bunch of questions together, to figure out where we were aligned and where we were different. And it just felt like the most important decision, especially for a venture firm where all you really have at the beginning is uh, a partnership uh, and an idea. Um, you know, when you're starting a company, uh, at least you have a product you're going to build together. Um, you know, the, the company should be able to outlast uh, co-founders splitting, um, plenty of great companies have actually, uh, outlasted that. If you, if you think about history, um, it's pretty hard for a venture firm to outlast a, a broken partnership. And, and so that was top of mind for me as Mike and I went down this journey together. We spent a lot of time in 2020 figuring out whether or not to do this. And, uh, we just got more excited about more and more excited about sort of the combination we would have, how much fun we would have doing this together, how aligned we were on what we wanted to build together. Uh, we made a bunch of investment decisions together as angels, simulating what it would be to be like to have a firm together. And, and we got more and more conviction that we should do this. And um, that was the most important thing I think we could have done before we, you know, fist bumped uh, in his back garden to say, we're going we're gonna to actually build footwork together. Yeah, I like that idea. Um, the slightly uh, more casual idea of look, you know, going through some of these angel checks together, sort of vetting it as if you were a partnership, and then seeing seeing those seeing those synergies, seeing that overlap play out. Um, I think that's you know a, a, a very viable route that individuals should definitely consider. You know, rather than <laughs> diving in blind and realizing that narratives, theses are somewhat conflicting which i guess in 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 one way could bring a lot new perspective to the idea of a given fund but also at the same time could be the could be the source of a couple of headaches too nikhil so uh <laughs> definitely definitely important to to get aligned there um i am interested though look what are some of the core traits you look for in founders now yeah you know this is still probably the one of the hardest parts of the venture business, if not the hardest part is evaluating the founders, especially in a compressed timeline, uh, you know, especially the hyper compressed timeline of the last couple of years, figuring out what are the true strengths and weaknesses of a founding team or a founder herself. Um, and, uh, and, and making an investment decision where so much of the decision actually is about the founder, uh, it's still one of the hardest parts of this business for me. Um, and I'm constantly evolving my mental models for what to look for in founders. I'll throw out a few that, that, that we look for. The first is founders who are both hungry and humble. Uh, you know, I think to, to start a business, you have to be crazy, uh, but there's a spectrum from sort of crazy to delusional. And Mike and I prefer, uh, you know, crazy and not delusional 
uh, you know, to, to, um, to, to, to the more delusional side uh, of a founder. Uh, I think one of the ways you stay not delusional is to be humble. And, and so that's um, one characteristic, uh, sort of hungry and humble that we look for in, in founders. The second is we look for founders who know their business inside and out. And the third is we look for founders who are talent magnets and uh, can hire terrific people around them. And so there are often some early signals around all three of those um, when we're spending time with a founder who's thinking about a seed round or a series A round. Uh, but, you know, we actually have met in person all of the founding teams that we've invested in before we've invested. Uh, we've, we're a little bit old school, I think, on this dimension to try to really suss out uh, who a founder is because it's such an important part of the, the decision. Yeah, super interesting. Um, I know only, well, a couple of weeks weeks ago, we had Carl Harrison over Contrary on the show. And he essentially highlighted that, look, founder risk is really the most important thing at an early stage because you're bringing something into existence from nothing. Um, but I, I really like that, that mental model that you proposed there, Nikhil, of, look, they've got to be hungry, but they've also got to be humble. You know, they, they've, they've got to be irrationally passionate about solving a problem, but also look, know when it's time to iterate and improve upwards and take a bit of a step back when you realize something just isn't working. Um, I guess from these experiences and from these interactions with many founders, what's the biggest lesson you've taken from your investing career so far, Nikhil? I think it's probably uh, around this topic um, that Kyle brought up as well, which is at the end of the day, um, no matter how much product market fit there is, no matter how excited you are about the market, uh, about what you think is a competitive advantage, so much of the success of these businesses rests on the founding team, um, the CEO, who she or he is, how they adapt, uh, how much drive they have, um, how well they can sell and, and, and tell the narrative of uh, what this business becomes, um, how great their vision is. You know, I think once you've done this for long enough, that's what most people come back to, which is, man, so much of this decision is about people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is a people-driven game. People drive the outcomes. People drive the results. And without a good founding team, then ultimately, no matter how good a product is, unless there's the execution behind that drive, then it will ultimately fail. So I can get behind that Nick Hill. Um, and I know Josh Wolf has a, a brilliant quote, which is the single most important trait of an entrepreneur is someone who can tell a story. And storytelling in, in this age more, more than ever in, in, in the abundance of media, Nick Hill, is super, super important. Someone who can effectively articulate your message, the problem you're solving, and you know your, your, your irrational passion like like i mentioned earlier um those are definitely some winning founders from this you know i'm go on no I, I it's interesting because i think uh with with any of these um sort of isms about uh you know what to look for in founders there are always counterexamples, and you know everyone has sort of perhaps a slightly different take, I, I would say about storytelling, it, it can be an incredible strength of companies. Some of the greatest founders uh, of all time are just in incredible storytellers, right? Like Elon Musk, who uh, I know Josh Wolf has some opinions on. Um, whatever you say about him, whatever you think of him, uh, his ability to sell the vision of uh, companies like Tesla and SpaceX, uh, just amazing. Uh, and one of the all-time great storytellers. Uh, you know, I think the, the benchmark partnership has said this publicly that uh, Adam uh, Neumann from, from WeWork 
one of, if not the, the greatest storyteller they've ever seen. And that's an example of where storytelling can actually, you know, be a, a massive strength, but also weakness of a company. Uh, and so I think storytelling can go both ways, but on the margin, uh, would you rather back a founder who's an incredible storyteller versus not? Uh, you would back the one that's an incredible storyteller. And so um, yeah, just, just wanted to make sure I flag that as a uh, addendum to that comment. No, that, that's something I, I too believe in, Nikhil. I think there's a definite di- dichotomy here, right? You know, when you're in the game of VC, and obviously you, you, you know this, you know this best, Nikhil, that, that you're, you're believing before other people understand, right? You're believing in someone's vision. But at the same time, you have to make sure that they're not full of it and it's not another Theranos. <laughs> so, so there's, there's, there's an absolute balance that, must be found and you know actually digging into the unit economics and you know knowing actually what's going on under the cover i think is super what excites you most about the future of vc nickel you know right now what's exciting me is i think that we've already started to see a huge generational shift in the industry and uh you know, over the last year, we've seen folks who've been in the business for a long time, people like Bill Gurley at Benchmark, Roger Ehrenberg at IA Ventures, Jeremy Liu at Lightspeed, um, Bijan Sabit at, at Spark Capital. These are all phenomenal investors, people I've looked up to in my career, but uh, they've had incredible, you know, 15 to 25 year runs and they're hanging up their boots. And uh, I think we'll see a lot more of that uh, especially as this bear market continues to unfold. Um, and that just excites me for uh, a new generation to sort of take the reins uh, of this business. And you know, I think there are some firms that are going to be able to survive that generational transition and shift. Uh, there are new firms of folks in this new generation that um, I think will get built and become top firms. And obviously I hope Footwork can be one of those at the early stage. Uh, and then we'll start to see, you know, people who are right now in their 20s, uh, you know, um, climb up the ranks and uh, and and join, you know, a community of folks of, uh, of special investors. And it's just fun to see. It's fun to think about that and think about how it's going to change the whole business. So that's one thing I'm really excited about. And then I think, you know, we're on the cusp of a, a lot of change the moment and i think this bear market will shake out a bunch of founders and companies that you know shouldn't have been funded or were massively overvalued uh and and within that uh i think a bunch of new companies will uh will be getting off the ground over the next couple of years and i'm uh really really excited to go find the best ones and and back them i love that and i guess on a less investing theme, Nick Hill, what does your perfect day look like? My perfect day, I think, uh, let me try to weave both personal and professional into this. Uh, I always like to work out in the mornings, uh, either um, a strength weights workout or a run. Uh, I find both to be meditative. And so uh, my day typically starts with um, uh, either that first or, uh, getting to wake up my daughter or seeing her wake up first. Uh, and both those things are incredible starts to the day. And then it's really, I think the perfect day consists of one conversation with, uh, unique insights that, that, that blows me away either with a founder or, um, someone at one of our portfolio companies or being recruited to one of our portfolio companies or a fellow investor. Uh, I love sort of one moment every day that gets me thinking and that makes me think, wow, I'm just so lucky to get to do this job every day. Uh, And then I I really do enjoy time to sort of think for myself, read, listen, um, write, uh, and a dream day includes some of that as well. you know, honestly, one of the things I feel incredibly lucky to have is 
it's been about 12 years of, of doing this investing job. And there have been extremely few days in 12 years that I haven't uh, enjoyed the day. And in general, I just absolutely love the day to day of getting to do this. And that's what I feel. Uh, if, if, anyone, if everyone is so lucky, they should have that in their career. Uh, to me, that's the North Star. Put aside money and power and fame and all these other things. If you actually get up out of bed every day, excited to get to work and love what you do, you should feel really grateful. And, uh, and that's how I feel. That's tremendous. I think whatever you do in life, do it with passion. And I think the construction of your perfect day there, Nick, will really speak as volumes, um, especially including that time for some introspection, uh, time with yourself, listening, uh, reading, writing. Um, I think that's often overlooked by a lot of people with the busyness of individual lives getting caught up in the day-to-day and rarely taking that deliberate step back and going, look, am I doing what I want to be doing here? For sure. And, you know, when people reach out to me about career advice, you know, should I get into venture or start something or what type of company I should join? I, I always basically tell them the same thing, which is, look, find that thing that you just love doing every day. Um, and, uh, and so I'm glad you, you, you sort of feel the same way. It sounds like. Absolutely. Now, before this podcast, I did ask Twitter for some questions they'd like to ask Nick Hill. So we'll dive right in. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Let's do it. Right. So Mario Gabriele at the generalist firstly asks, how do you filter for founders? Okay. Um, look, I, I think it's very hard to do that filtering based on uh, a resume, uh, a LinkedIn profile. One of the things I look for is sort of quality of thinking. Um, and so I often ask a founder to send a memo or a deck more than anything to understand how they think, to try to suss that out. Um, I think, you know, the other things I mentioned earlier, you know, are they hungry and humble? Uh, do they know their business inside and out? Uh, can they be phenomenal magnets for talent? Those are three things I try to keep in my mind as I filter through founders and figure out which ones, maybe ones I want to work with. Um, and then spending time with them in person, if you're excited about the company and them, I just think there's no substitute for that uh, to truly try to assess them. So those are some of the ways. No, super interesting. Um, and secondly, Carl Harrison asks, what are your biggest learnings from starting a new firm? Starting a venture firm is tough. I mean, I talked earlier about the empathy one gets when you do this with with founders of any kind, and I think that's absolutely true. Um, there are a bunch uh, that I'm happy to relate to, to Kyle. Uh, I'll try to touch on a couple right now. One is, you know, one of the surprises for me has been uh, the sort of gravitational pull that you have as someone who started a firm and as a new firm to entrepreneurs. You know, there's some entrepreneurs that just get most excited about an older brand, the legacy brand, or, you know, the highest valuation, the biggest round size when they go out to, to, to raise capital. But there's a lot of entrepreneurs who just gravitate towards other entrepreneurs. And when you've started a firm, uh, you know, you're able to speak the language of founders in a different way to a lot of other venture investors, you know, folks who are just partners inside of a big firm, for example. And that really resonates. And so that's been one big learning from, from starting a firm uh, that's been a positive one and, and, and a surprise to me that I didn't really think about before doing this. And then I'd say another big learning is there's just so much freedom when you're painting the canvas. And, you know, this business is going to change a lot over the next you know, 10, 20 years. Uh, and so staying open-minded to how you will change 
how the firm will change, how it should grow and adjust to the market, I think is really important for any new firm. And uh, that's something that I, you know, probably consider and think about on a daily basis, honestly, is, you know, how should we change and how should we adapt? And that isn't something I was really thinking about uh, in my prior firms. I think it's just different when you've started a firm. Tremendous. And now I do have a tradition on this podcast, Nikhil, where at the end of the show, each guest answers a question that was left by the previous guest. Last week, we had Mate Sata, the co-founder of Blindspot, also the guy behind the most upvoted Reddit post of all time. (laughs) Their question is, how do you go about creating useful habits for yourself? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think for me, the most important thing is blocking off the time uh, and being very intentional to say, this is going to be my time to do X thing. Uh, You know, for, for me, sort of clearing out my calendar to just make sure I do something uh, on a daily basis or weekly basis or whatever that habit is that I'm trying to build has been critical to actually doing it. Uh, The second thing has been accountability. And, you know, so whether that's, you know, a, a personal trainer for exercising or someone who you've committed to look, I'm going to publish this thing on this day. Uh, I don't think there's any substitute for accountability in developing a habit. So uh, block off the time and find a way to make yourself accountable. Those are my two recommendations for how to form a habit. Super useful advice there, Nikhil. Um, I could have done with listening to that a few years ago, I think. <laughs> me, me, me <laughs> but no, too. Not, not... <laughs> No, well, listen, we've come to the end now, Nikhil, but I've so enjoyed this one. It's been, you know, exceptionally raw, honest, transparent, and it's been a really, really great conversation. So really glad we got to do it. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. This has been a lot of fun.